You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 92 is something like, what is metaphysics? We'll be discussing Henri Bergson's essay, An Introduction to Metaphysics, from 1903. You can get the discussion and the text and lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, existing in pure duration from Madison, Wisconsin. Ooh, I didn't think of one. This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dolan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. And this is Matt Teichman, claiming to dispense with symbols in Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> nice. Ground rules for our discussion include, number one, try not to assume that our audience has read what we're talking about or has any other background in philosophy. Number two, don't make arguments that hinge on something other than what we've agreed to read. Don't say, you'd know what I was talking about if only you'd read Spaz on a Sunday, the Johann Gottlieb Fichte story. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, we'll be rigorous and exact in all that we say, unless doing otherwise would be potentially more amusing. Welcome back, Matt. Thank you. It's great to be back. back. Hey. Thanks for doing that awesome precog for us. Oh, thanks. That was a lot of fun. That was the first of that kind of thing I've tried to do. But yeah, very interesting. You did a nice job. Thank you. Yep. Right. So Matt's description of what was going on in this Henri Bergson focused on some concrete examples. And we're specifically pointing out Bergson's criticism of most philosophy, most analysis as losing the thing that's being analyzed, right? That whenever you analyze something, you're taking a snapshot of it, say. And then if you think you can reconstruct the thing itself from a bunch of snapshots, well, that's just ludicrous. So that's fine for science. That's fine if you have a practical purpose that you are creating an abstract concept to represent something for. But when you're actually trying to investigate the thing itself, then that's the wrong track. He thinks that instead of creating these concepts, which all that concepts do is to figure out what's common about the thing that you're looking at, what it has in common with other things, right? So if I look at a particular dog and I say, that's a dog, then I'm pointing out that it has properties in common with other dogs. I'm not actually getting at anything specific, unique to this dog. If I want to really get at the essence of this thing, then that's not going to be the way to do it. There's no way, it seems, if you never experienced, if you ever interacted with a dog yourself, that from somebody giving you a bunch of pictures of a dog or telling you facts about a dog or blood samples, there could be any number, any amount of data, you're never going to be able to reconstruct a dog. You're never truly going to be able to understand a dog. So that distinction was clear enough to me. And then he thinks that getting at the thing itself, the thing that the abstraction, the science is missing, that's actually what metaphysics is. That's what philosophy proper is supposed to be doing. Matt used this example of juggling. I guess the same thing would be true of dogs in the way you just gave the example, Mark. But the thing I liked about the juggling case is Matt explained that I can juggle without ever being able to tell you how to juggle. And I can know how to juggle, in fact, without doing that. And it seemed to me that that example plays out with all kinds of things, like knowing how to play a musical instrument, maybe. And it made me think that there, in this case, would be a difference between, I don't know, being a philosopher in this terms, or the activity of doing philosophy versus talking about or communicating philosophy. Because at some level, it seems like even in the case of the dog, the first thing you run up against is that you just can't communicate anything about it. So, where I got hung up was the idea that the activity of philosophy, as Bergson says, is in creating concepts. And so, that's the activity of metaphysics, activity of philosophy. But I got hung up there because it seemed that the real philosophizing was so interior 
that like knowing how to juggle, it would be a separate activity to actually communicate how to juggle versus knowing how to juggle yourself. And it seems like that problem would plague philosophy from the standpoint of Bergson. So you'd have genius philosophers who, in fact, can't communicate philosophically at all? Like, that's certainly not the way we use the term. They communicate in the way that he's communicating here, right? I mean, he advocates this use of images. Ultimately, what we're trying to get at, right, is this intuitive approach to an object, which he identifies with something he calls intellectual sympathy. So you sort of get inside of a particular, so to speak. That's more obvious and understandable when we're talking about some sort of sympathy or empathy with other human beings. It seems bizarre to talk about objects in that way, but I think, at least on some level, he wants us to think that way. So when he gives us these different images where he's trying to get us at the concept of duration, even though those images aren't adequate to duration, they're better than concepts. We can do something by approaching things with these different metaphors. I thought he was famous for getting inside of dogs. <laughs> yeah, he spent three years running around barking and catching frisbees just to, you know, really feel what it was like. <laughs> yeah, just before he wrote this. What is it like to be a dog? His other, <laughs> other famous essay on metaphysics. Yes. I listened to Matt's precog several times and his characterization of intuition as being something akin to knowledge how as opposed to knowledge that. Did I get that right? Yeah. That's one example, right? Well, that's what I think. I'd be very curious to see how we enrich that idea of intuition throughout the conversation, particularly because Bergson makes a point of mentioning the role of imagination and memory in this exercise. And so there's a lot of parallels with some other things we've talked about that uh, I'd be curious to bring up. And I didn't quite get at what he was driving at with the word intuition, but I feel like he's trying to get at something a little richer than that. Well, yeah, I think it's not that every case of intuiting is a knowing how. I just think that's one distinction that you can use to get at the distinction between intuiting and knowing. Was it an example or an analogy? Because I would think a lot of knowing how, you could say, maybe doesn't have any intuition, if you take intuition to be a kind of knowledge at all, that you just do something. You know, the spider knows how to run up the wall in that it's running up the wall, so knows how to do that. There's a lot of instinctual, I know how to uh, digest food. He's associating the intuitive and the instinctual, isn't he? But I'm just saying, if you're not conscious of digesting your food, then it seems strange to say, I have an intuition about digesting food. So knowing how would seem to at least require some sort of reflection. You'd have to have the experience, right, of competently doing something. That's the intuitive moment where you're inside that experience. He uses the example of sympathizing with ourselves, which again seems strange, but that's just the starting point. Obviously, we can sympathize with ourselves, and that sort of intuitive access to ourselves is meant to be a paradigm. But our knowledge is meant to extend in metaphysics beyond ourselves, obviously. And we're meant to have intuition of other things, even though it sounds strange. I mean, and we might begin with saying, okay, we have this sort of sympathy towards other human beings, but I think it goes even beyond that. We're meant to be able to have a kind of intellectual sympathy with inanimate beings. I think it goes beyond sympathy. He uses the word identity at one point. Identification, I think he is the word, right? Mm. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it's strange at all, actually. I mean, this language of thinking like the inanimate thing or the mechanical thing, 
That's what's undergoing in the language when you're in physics or something like that, where you say, well, the electron really wants to be closer to the positron. Or you're trying to fix a car or whatever, you know, you very quickly get into the standpoint of interacting with that object as if it were a, you know, an animate thing. Or take the concepts of force and causality. I mean, this gets mm -hmm. us a little bit to Schopenhauer, where we're thinking of causality as something we can intimately know because it's a projection of our access to our own wills. Or take the concept of force in physics, where one wonders whether we could adequately understand that concept if we didn't know what it was like to be able to push on things and to be pushed on. You understand what I mean? We have to have some sort of intuitive accompaniment to that. Now, yes, force can be described in terms of equations and correlations where we sort of abandon that intuitive stance, but it's unclear we could ever get to that point of abandonment if we didn't intuitively understand it in the first place. Here's a good example. There's this uh, quantity in quantum mechanics called spin. And when it was mm -hmm. you know, first presented in quantum mechanics, the reason it was called spin is that it had mathematical properties of angular momentum, just like if you know, twist yourself up on a swing mm -hmm. and you start spinning and you stick your legs out, you slow down, you bring your legs in, you speed up, and things that are spinning and orbiting around each other in gravitation, it matters that they're spinning. Or you throw something through the air and if it's spinning, just like a curveball or a tennis ball, it behaves differently than if it weren't spinning. Mm -hmm. And the mathematical equations that describe that activity, those relationships are the same in quantum mechanics, very similar. Mm -hmm. But the thing you always have to say when you're talking about quantum mechanics and spin is that the electron actually isn't spinning in the sense of that the electron, that, that matter, isn't spinning physically in space the way a tennis ball is spinning when it's going through the air. There would be consequences of that charge spinning that you can't detect. So it has an intrinsic angular momentum, and we call that spin, but it really is analogical in this respect. Hmm. Is it a tendency towards, or a? is it something like a potential, or...? No, it's a quantum mechanical property, the way in which charge is a quantum mechanical property. It's an inherent characteristic of the entity. So just as an electron has a, a negative charge, and that constitutes a way of talking about... It's just being used analogically, even though it's not spinning. That's right. And okay. I think when it was first proposed, it was sort of an open question about, is it actually spinning or not spinning and stuff like that? It doesn't have to be. It was the case of it obeying mathematical relations that were similar to or the same as angular momentum. But to me, that's an example where you have to qualify it, that you don't mean that it's actually spinning, that it's analogical. And this question of it being analogous, the difference between it being analogous and the activity of intuition drawing analogies versus getting inside the thing, it's a little bit fuzzy to me. What I was saying is that to understand angular momentum, it helps to actually know what it's like to spin around. Sure. <laughs> yes. As absurd as it sounds, but yes. I think there's something to that. I think that's true. I was going to say something about the knowledge how question. Yeah. Yep. The way I read this paper, I think knowledge how is kind of the paradigm case of intuitive understanding. You know, if I move my hands, you know, if anything that we ever do is intuition, it's the way I understand the movement of my own hand when I do it. And then it's kind of an open question when other cases of intuition are possible. Yeah. Knowing what it is you're doing is the starting point from which he tries to kind of expand outwards. So the next step after maybe knowing your own hand movement in this practical way, the next step beyond that might be, well, suppose I watched somebody else moving their hand and 
via this like deep empathic identification with the person, I enter into their point of view. Mm -hmm. And maybe if this is possible, it's maybe an open question. But anyway, that's what it would be. You deeply identify with the other person moving their hand and know their hand in the kind of divorced from interest way that you know your own hand movement. Right. So I think it's in that second paragraph where he's talking about the experience of movement, but I don't think it has to be something skillful that you've practiced. It seems like he's simply talking about this sympathetic internal relation to ourselves. And then he gets to that example of someone in a novel. And I think, Seth, that's what you were talking about, where it's one thing to understand a character who's being described in the novel through all the different external descriptions you could give of that character, but it's another to identify that character and then kind of know intuitively, yes, all these, the things the character is going to say and his gestures and his actions, they all naturally flow out of who he is. And that makes sense. That's a two different kinds of, and you could say, Bergson doesn't say this, but you could say it's a bad novelist or someone who's bad at characterization. Those two things wouldn't match up very well, right? You, characters would do things which just don't seem believable based on your identification, your intuitive, sympathetic understanding of them. Yeah. Well, we ought to say something about, I think even though Matt did an awesome job on the precog, that Bergson talks about these two different modes of knowledge roughly equate to science on the one hand and something else on the other. Metaphysics. <laughs> yeah, metaphysics. Okay, I didn't want to use the word we were trying to define in the process <laughs> of it. But he has another way of characterizing it, which is to say that this knowledge that, this thing that's similar to science, is about being external to the object or the thing or the other entity that you're trying to characterize. And he said something that I thought was really interesting, which is that this type of external characterization is an attempt to find commonalities between a thing and other things and then do a comparison. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, is that if you characterize something as red or tall or smart, it's a process of using a concept or an idea that you use when you talk about other things. And that, just by virtue of it being a relational in that way, creates a comparison between the thing you're characterizing and other things. And that has two purposes. One is, is that it doesn't, in essence, respect whatever the pure individuality and uniqueness of the thing is, but it also reduces the thing to that one specific concept and that it doesn't create a full picture. And that goes back to the example of taking a bunch of pictures of the tower mm -hmm. that you can't stitch them all together because they're all partial representations, not parts. Right. The concept gets at some property, which is just one part of the object. And then the idea is that if we have enough concepts, we piece together the thing from its part properties. By the way, this discussion is on the paragraph that starts on the bottom of page four and goes on to page five. So one of the things that I found curious about Bergson, and especially in terms of his rhetoric, was just the way in which he structured it as, well, philosophy does this, and in particular, science does that. And he would make some characterizations that then he would argue we should do differently. It was often the case that the examples he gave as the things going wrong did not line up exactly with his articulation of the problem, even if his solution was one that made sense. So, this argument about the relationships is one of them, because it's certainly true that it's part of the activity of doing science, but I think it's arguably true, and maybe he wouldn't deny this about just rational thinking, is that you have 
either an implicit or a formal process of taking ratios, of taking relations. And that is the means by which you understand one thing from the other. And that does exactly what Seth talked about, is that you end up focusing on maybe one thing. And the error then becomes extrapolating that feature, that picture, for instance, the picture of the Willis Tower into being the Willis Tower. Science and I think all kinds of rationality is riddled with that problem of taking one piece of the relation and then extrapolating it too far. And then in the case of science, it's often the case that that gets reeled back because we realize, oh, well, we made a mistake in the case of fractions and irrational numbers is a perfect example of saying, well, we can take whole numbers and take relationships between them and we get fractions. And well, that's all of the numbers that we have. And then you find out in a problem like Zeno's paradox of going half and half and half and half, you see, you have this paradox, well, how do I ever get there if I can always go half? And that paradox ends up being one way of characterizing the problem of not having articulated enough numbers, of being wrong in our extrapolation to the nature of numbers. And I think that he has a similar, he in fact appeals to calculus in this respect. I think that activity of taking ratios, of, of establishing relations, is absolutely true. But it's not that activity itself that is the problem. It's the problem of the extrapolation. I think, though, he's not critiquing science here. And he's not saying that all of this stuff about concepts and focusing on one property at a time and generalizing and the relative perspectival nature and the use of symbols, all of those different ways that he offers this critique. That's not a critique of science because science just is discursive knowledge. It relies on all those things. And it's also enormously useful, which he points out in this essay. If you have practical problems and you want to solve those based on human needs, science is the way to go. And then we could say, okay, well, now there's an open question about whether there's any other type of knowledge And I think most of us are going to be skeptical, right, towards that idea that there's another type of knowledge, at least in the rich sense. His claim is that there is going to be that, and his critique is directed at metaphysics. And in this way, it's somewhat reminiscent of Kant. You know, if metaphysics tries simply to imitate science and use concepts and other discursive methods to approach non-discursive things, then it's going to lead us into error, and that the proper approach for metaphysics is this intuitive approach that he has. Again, it's directed towards metaphysics and not science per se. Right. Well, isn't it trying to save a sphere outside of science in very familiar ways, right? Familiar to us now. So just to pull up an example from a recent discussion that we had, we started at the beginning of our discussion with David Brin talking about intelligence and he immediately... Discussion? (laughs) Launched into a speech about evolutionary theory, basically why we might have intelligence, what this came from. And then it's not an uncommon thing to think, oh, I have insight into evolutionary biology. So I've now given an account of the essence of man. And really, that's how you understand what people are about is by getting at what could have possibly motivated us to, in the process of natural selection, acquire the characteristics that we have. And this is not to bash that sort of explanation itself, but to think then that you've in any way replaced the humanities or that that answer made sense in the context of talking about why do philosophy is ridiculous. I would also put it in the following perspective is that you end up arguing that we're going to replace science itself. I understand what you were saying, Wes, on the one hand, that it's not meant to be a criticism of science, it's meant to be a criticism of metaphysics. But anybody who thinks that the concepts and the notions that lie at the center of what would be a theory or a scientific account come from just 
equations or our derivative from that mere setup is just misunderstanding what the activity of doing science is. That's actually unclear to me. He's agreeing with Dylan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would also say the same thing is true when we talk about like criticizing Bryn, right? You're right, Mark, to make that criticism, but it's just as much as you say it goes to saying that you can't get away from understanding the value of the humanities or philosophy in that argument, you also are fundamentally misunderstanding your activity of doing science if you think that that's all it is. You need the world and you need that intuitive understanding that Bergson's talking about in order to even do science, period. You can't do it. Kuhn jumps to mind immediately here that when you're coming up with a new paradigm, you're coming up with new scientific concepts, then according to Bergson, you would have to go back to the well of intuition and do a, a new kind of yes. analysis. But when you're doing everyday science, no, you're just charting correlations. You're applying the concepts that you already have to work out more data. You seem to be saying that you're doing something creative all the time. Keep in mind a difference here between the way one does science and then a body of knowledge and what makes that body of knowledge scientific. So I think largely what will make the body of knowledge scientific is its conceptual nature. Although it occurs to me now, you know, you think about, well, what about the axioms of the system and so on and so forth? But I think, you know, to say, yes, science involves intuition, that's one thing. But then I think it's a more complicated question to say, well, to what extent does intuition play a role in what makes science scientific as a body of knowledge? You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. But I guess what I want to say is that this problem of the distinction between concept forming and the kind of intuition and working on metaphysics that Bergson is talking about, and on the one hand, and dismissing that or not reaching for it and being sort of stuck in repetitive or merely discursive is the way you put it, Wes, or in the case of uh, in what Mark said about doing the work of working out a set of scientific concepts, this is true across intellectual disciplines. And it's true in the humanities, and it's true in politics. It's not just true in science. And I guess I'm reacting to this because it may be that there is in the activity of doing science a kind of paradigm of this, but it's certainly not the case that it's the only one that does this. And it's also not the case yeah. that the activity of doing science is somehow simply understood in that discursive activity. Right. He's not making the claim that there's nothing intuitive or creative about science. I don't think he would make that claim. Yeah, I think uh, Bergson and Dylan are in complete agreement on pretty much everything that's been mentioned so far. So it's not that intuition or intuitive understanding or whatever doesn't play any role in science. I think the way he's thinking of it is it's what keeps science alive. It's what keeps science from stagnating. And he uses the same example that Dylan used of, oh my God, we have Zeno's paradox, but then 19th century mathematics, a revolution happens, a paradigm shift happens, and mm. we have these new, we have Cantorian infinites and so forth and ways of dealing with Zeno's paradox that we didn't have before, precisely because, well, it's, we're talking math now rather than empirical science, but nonetheless, we have this extremely symbolic way of thinking that underwent a paradigm shift and was able to solve an old problem, or anyway, maybe, you know, deal with an old problem by reinvigorating it itself with a flash of intuitive insight, by right? going back and updating itself, keeping itself alive, rather than stagnating and just getting stuck in the same old conceptual distinctions that it was in before. So calculus, I think, is the example he brings up, right? Let's explain what about calculus makes you want to use it. This is on page 16, where he's going through... Yeah, here's that delightful line, the object of metaphysics is to perform qualitative differentiations and integrations. <laughs> yeah. Which is a little bit insane. Uh. Yeah, exactly. It does. It, it, the section seven, starting on page 16, 
What he likes about calculus and differentiation is the way in which it's integrating across and collecting up all the, you could call them infinitesimals. There's a respect for continuity in calculus, let's put it that way, that he likes. Well, he would call it motion, right? Yeah, I mean, it's basically what Dylan said before, right? It's like, we don't have enough yeah. numbers, so let's, <laughs> so let's reinvent what number is so that we have more of them, you know? And a respect yeah. for mobility, yeah. <laughs> and he sees this as beginning with Galileo, and the res- right? I think it's motion, right? That he sees calculus as an attempt to embody motion as something and speak of the motion itself, rather than the object being in location yeah. One, two, three, yeah, four. Exactly. Yeah. At times A, B, and C. And that the activity of calculus gets you something like the motion that you might then say, oh, it passes through this point, but you would never say it is at that point. In fact, that you get a language in calculus that allows you to speak of the motion itself rather than it being like a film where you have individual snapshots that then you just run very fast. In calculus, that's not what it is. It's not individual snapshots that you run very, very fast. It's actually a continuity. You've tried to embody the motion. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, calculus is crazy. I remember when I first took it, I was like, what do you mean slope of a point? It's like self-contradictory. How can a point have a slope? Right. <laughs> right. So, Wes, one of the things that I thought of when I was reading this is that tying back to that discussion, I think Mark, boy, this is going to be a lot of name drops and references, Mark, I think in one of the emails before you just the dropped the, the name Mark. Is that yeah, Mark and Wes? I'm name dropping. <laughs> just point at me. Don't you'd understand this if you'd read Mark's email that he sent to us prior to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned that you mentioned something about tying this into Kuhn and the idea of the paradigm shift. In essence, you could read Bergson as saying that there's a moment of intuition which then spawns a bunch of science. Mm-hmm. The scientific activity, if you will, is the working out of the intuition that gets at something fundamental. And he equates not just scientific work, but also metaphysics as it's done right now as being something with a purpose or being useful. We create concepts and we do this work because it has some utility. And again, this is a negative definition of the notion of intuition, but I thought Wes at least would appreciate that he is suggesting in some way, shape, or form that metaphysics in this form of intuitionism is somehow at least not useful. <laughs> yeah, of course. The lack of utility <laughs> is one of its main uh, benefits. Although I think you could also think of it as like useful in every possible way. So not just narrowly useful, but... <laughs> right. Of course. It all depends on your definition of utility. And yeah, that's what it, these... It's not driven towards a specific end. Not so much not useful, but... When you have this insight, you don't know in what way it's going to cash itself out. Yeah, exactly. Whereas when you do the actual work to figure it out, you're going towards a specific end. So do you think intuition is even possible? Like I would think if I'm looking at my own hand and I'm experiencing my own hand is moving, that even then I'm doing it right now to try to illustrate a philosophical point. Or something like that. He wants to say that this intuition is absolute, whereas the conceptual analysis is relative. But it seems that you never experience the entirety of even one of your own experiences, you might say. I'm not sure. I mean, if you're really saying the object that I'm investigating here is the motion of the hand, not my experience of the motion of the hand, maybe you could say, yes, of course, I experience as a whole the experience of my motion of the hand. Although I'm not sure about that. Maybe if you ask me questions afterward about the motion of the hand, I might say, Oh, I did notice that thing that there was hair on the back of my hand that I wasn't consciously focusing on as part of the experience. But in any case, he says the object of investigation is the motion itself. 
So you have a perspective on the motion, and then it's been acknowledged that you could have a mirror behind you while your hand is moving, and you would be experiencing the motion in a different way. That I don't see how a self-observation, even of you doing the action, gives you some sort of absolute connection with the object of your experience that any other kind of investigation wouldn't have. The connection is that you have access to what it's like to be in that situation, right? Whereas if you're looking at the motion of a ball down a ramp, there's no connection to that in terms of what it's like to be a ball rolling down a ramp, unless we conclude that there's some sort of possibility of intuitive metaphysical access to that. Well, but that's what he was saying, right? As one of the key intuitive insights that drove Galileo to revolutionize physics was that he said, I'm going to take the motion of the ball rolling from the top to bottom as a whole. And he accused Aristotle of analyzing this in terms of static concepts, that there's highness and there's lowness and... Whether or not this is accurate to Aristotle, who cares for the moment? So does that notion of intuition, does that even make sense according to what you understand Bergson to have said? What does what make sense? To the On the one hand, we are saying that intuition is the paradigm case is experiencing yourself having right. an experience, your own hand. So we gave this weird definition of intuition. And then for a lot of the last part of the conversation, we started using the word intuition as if we know what we're talking about. Well, maybe we should go back to his concept of duration, because that's how he spells out, you know, this it okay. comes on page three, where after he says metaphysics is a science which claims to dispense with symbols, he says that one reality, at least, which we all seize from within by intuition and not by simple analysis, is our own personality, and it's flowing through time, mm-hmm. our self which endures. We may sympathize intellectually with nothing else, but we certainly sympathize with our own selves. And then he goes into this concept of duration and these different images that we can use to understand duration, including this idea of an uncoiling. So this inner life may be compared to the unrolling of a coil. He thinks it's better to think of it as the continual rolling up on a coil, like that of a a thread on a ball. For our past follows us, it swells incessantly with the present that it picks up on its way which is a very nice (laughs) turn of phrase, by the way. As opposed to a string of perceptions, which is what Hume or Barclay or somebody is going to characterize conscious life as, is a perception of my hand, perception of my hand here, perception of my hand here, perception of the table below my hand, etc. So each perception becomes memory, and then the bulk of memory, this thing that's swelling incessantly, becomes something via which every new perception is interpreted, right? That's one of the important senses, I think, of this notion of duration and this rolling up. Yeah, the coiling thing may be kind of confusing at first. Part of the background to this is his notion of memory from an earlier book, Matter and Memory. Here's one picture of memory, which is not Bergson's. I have a little sensor in the back of my eye registering information. I register it, and that's my immediate experience. And then it's saved in my like mental hard drive or something. And then maybe a year from now, if I want to go remember it, I go back and I dig through my mental hard drive and pull up the memory. So that's maybe a picture of memory a lot of us have. But the picture of memory that Bergson wants is more like memory isn't what happens when you reach back into the vault and pull something out. It's what happens when something that happened before continues happening and affects your experience of the present now. So for example, if I, let's say a year ago, somebody, whatever, slapped me in the face, the idea is that I'm actually thenceforth 
continuing to feel the effects of getting slapped in the face. So in a sense, now, a year later, I'm still kind of getting slapped in the face. <laughs> Maybe the immediate sensation of getting slapped in the face, that's over. But the you know, deep sort of emotional, affective, cognitive undertones are still working their way through my psyche, even now, a year later. Like everything that's happened to me in the past is kind of still happening to me, just more slowly. That's kind of what memory is on his picture. It's the persisting in my consciousness of everything that's happened to me before. Yeah, and then that slap in the face that becomes part of you and the everything that happens to you after that, your interpretation of it, your experience of it is affected by that slap in the face. That becomes a sort of the theory-ladenness of experience. That's part of the... The interpenetration. The aggregate theory includes the slap in the face. Yeah. Not to focus too much on words here, but because the distinction between a part and an element looms largely for him... He wants to distinguish between something being an aggregate of its parts. I mean, if I pointed to what Mark referred to in terms of Hume as anything that happens is kind of a lining up of individual parts that we then associate a causality with, is that Bergson is making the distinction between holes that are multi-elemented, that have a multitudinous to them, without having parts in the sense of being a heap of them. And so... In the case of this uh, memory, colloquially you say it would become part of you, but I think it would become an element of your being in a way that isn't just stacked on there. It's integral to that unity, even though you can speak of it as being a separate. Right. All parts are a matter of retrospective analysis. And that's fine. You can, after the fact, distinguish this particular memory, this particular thing that happened to you, this particular theory about yourself. Mm -hmm. But as you experience it, you experience it as a continuity where everything interpenetrates everything else. Yeah, and this is a problem, it seems to me, in metaphysics altogether, where just talking about what an individual entity is, whenever you start talking, well, here's a table, here's a chair, how do I distinguish it from the wall and the floor? And I talk about, is this a tree or a bush? These kinds of identification things and trying to distinguish one thing from another. He says at one point that things just seem to happen to be separable into one thing and another. And that seems to me to be a little bit of a slip on his part where he's associating that separability into individual entities as coming from those entities and not from somehow our activity on them as well. Where does he say that? He says that right around the third page where you referred to. Right after the paragraph, there's one reality. He says, when I direct my attention inward to contemplate my own self, supposed for the moment to be inactive, I perceive it first as a crust solidified on the surface, all the perceptions which come to it from the material world. These perceptions are clear, distinct, juxtaposed, or juxtaposable with one another. They tend to group themselves into objects. And that phrase right there seemed to me to give that distinctness more to the world than maybe I thought he intended to. You know, it implies that the grouping is done by those perceptions themselves, not somehow by our activity, our memory, our own interaction with the world. Well, it seems like he could go either way here because he is sort of making a classic Kantian distinction here, even though I know he's objecting to Kant, but between what Kant called outer sense and inner sense. And this is outer sense. So Kant would be the guy who says, yes, all of these objects are constructed. I honestly don't know what Bergson thinks about that. Well, this whole section, I think you got to kind of look at the different pieces together because it's a duration. No, it's... <laughs> that is the idea. <laughs> because he's giving 
right? This is a crust. This is the superficial way of seeing yourself. You're looking at, like the supposed empiricist, Hume or Locke or Barclay, is seeing as a, as a sequence of perceptions. He says, next, I notice the memories which are more or less adhered to these perceptions which serve to interpret them. These memories have been detached, as it will, from the depth of my personality, drawn to the surface by the perceptions which resemble them. They rest on the surface of mine without being absolutely myself. Lastly, I feel a stir of tendencies and motor habits, a crowd of virtual actions more or less firmly bound to those perceptions and memories. All these clearly defined elements appear more distinct from me the more distinct they are from each other. Radiating as they do from within outwards, they form collective the surface of a sphere which tends to grow larger and lose itself in the exterior world. But if I draw myself in from the periphery toward the center, if I search in the depth of my being for that which is most uniformly, most constantly, and most enduringly myself, I find an altogether different thing. And that's when he gets to talking about the flux. Right. Well, the surface is the flux. The unity is the inner thing that we find at the center. No, it says, the next sentence is, there is, beneath these sharply cut crystals and this frozen surface, a continuous flux, which is not comparable to any flux I have ever seen. So this is not like... Freud saying, you know, dive below your experience to get at something unconscious. This is all part of what is available to consciousness. It's just sort of how deeply you look, that philosophy is all about looking deeply. So this is a distinction which is not new, right? First, he's talking about objects in space and time, objects of my experience. And then as we move inward, we get some states of the mind which are purely temporal emotions. and, And then he's talking about tendencies. And then at the center of it all, the question is, what's there? So at the point where we get to this flux, this succession of states, I mean, I'm reminded of... Heraclitus? I was reminded by Heraclitus. Maybe the distinction I'm trying to fit onto this isn't really exactly... But the important thing to understand is that he calls it a flux at first, and then he says, properly speaking, can only be said to be multiple states after we've turned back on them. And then he moves into the unrolling of the coil thing, where this sort of central movement through time at the center of the sphere is a very, very unified type of thing on the one hand, although on the other hand, we can talk about its multiplicity. So it gets hairy, obviously. Yeah, I definitely think the idea here is that all this stuff he's talking about, the blooming, buzzing confusion, definitely William James in the background here, this blooming, buzzing confusion he's talking about, that's all actually there in our experience. It's just that sort of staccato film strip slicing everything up conceptually all that that we think is part of our experience is an abstraction from i see yeah you know, the raw concrete stuff which he's describing here but he's describing both the raw concrete stuff and the abstractions from it the flux is what we would call the manifold i guess in previous philosophers and oh yeah if, yeah. yeah if yes. you like Kant on everything yeah. yeah about the part thing he doesn't mention aristotle here but i see aristotle as being in the background big time here so there's this uh, famous bit from aristotle's politics where he says that uh a severed hand is a hand in a completely different sense of the term from a hand that's attached to a body. Mm-hmm. That seems kind of crazy at first, because basically the idea there is that if you take somebody's arm and you cut their hand off, as soon as the hand leaves the body, it instantly transforms into a different thing. It's like <laughs> it's like a totally different kind of thing than it was before, which seems possibly counterintuitive. But I think the idea there is that, well, a hand is only really a hand insofar as it's fulfilling a certain function, insofar as it's connected to a body and doing hand stuff for a particular body. If it's just detached, and maybe it has all the same parts, but it's not actually doing any hand stuff anymore, it's not really a hand. It's like a hand, quote-unquote. So likewise, with this sort of part-whole distinctions that we draw, I don't think he's skeptical about there being different components of things in the world and these different components making separate contributions to things. It's just that 
we can get too hung up on slicing things up into parts and forgetting that those parts, they don't exist autonomously. They only are the parts they are insofar as they're contributing to the whole. It's not all out skepticism about parts that he's putting forth. Right. But ultimately, the basic entities are going to be motions, right? Right. The concrete living self. The reality is mobility. Not things made, but things in the making. Yeah. Right. Which sounds like you should then be referring to the surface with all these, you know, the flux sounds like a bunch of distinct things sort of flipping past. And that's the paradigm that it seemed like you were trying to sketch out from Kant and Schopenhauer, where we've got outer sense and we've got inner sense. And then when you get in the core, if you want to look at it as a sphere, then you don't get the buzzing, blooming manifold. You get the transcendental self that is absolutely unified and sort of beyond space and time. That's exactly what he's arguing against. Yeah, I think so. I think Khan has this uh, film strip picture of, you know, there are our minds and then there are these still images bombarding our minds. And, and then he has all this, you know, all this uh, crazy stuff about how we stitch those images together and create a continuous thing. But Bergson's right. picture is we start out with a continuous thing and then later on we dissect it into right. bits. Just because you brought up Aristotle already, this idea of motion is also intrinsic in Aristotle. He spends a lot of time in the physics focusing on motion as being the fundamental characteristic and Time is a numbering of motion, which is different than saying, well, I have space and I have time, and then motion comes from a way in which I go through this space and time. For Aristotle, it's the motion itself that is the characteristic, and the time is a derived quantity. Aristotle thinks of nature as the way that something can change, and I think Bergson is really influenced by him there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, in the take on time, that's really the key difference between Bergson and these prior guys that... Time is not a way of counting something. Time is not a series of quantitative measures, right? That's even, I think, for Kant, like where we get the notion of number is by counting things in time. Yeah. But for Bergson, that's a mistake. There's sort of two ways of taking time. One is as concrete duration, which we've been talking about, which is just really an unbroken, steady, qualitative change. It is the flux. And then there's an abstraction from that where you could sort of divide things up into minutes and seconds and project it as going forward indefinitely and going backward indefinitely. Bergson thinks that's actually an erroneous application of the logic of space to time. That space is, yes, yes, space is given that way as spread out. And space is how we have one thing next to each other and we compare them. It's spaces where juxtaposition is where that comes. But time is, is really totally different. The way we experience time is not like that. And it's only retrospectively through analysis that we, for instance, like Hume does, say there is this cause and then I saw this effect after it, that it points out successions of events and things like that. That there is no succession, there is no juxtaposition, that what a succession is, is to to freeze time and say... There's the present thing, and then I pull up my memory, and I put it next to the present thing, and I say, okay, this one was before this thing. This must have been the cause of this. That is already a mental act. It's not the way that we experience time. I thought he was trying to say there that time was a paradigmatic intuition. Yes. Time as the, yes. as the flux, as the flow. Okay. All right. That all this other stuff that we might say about it when we try to analyze time is freezing it, is like not as lived. Yeah. Yeah. What was interesting about the way he got there, though, was by doing a a criticism of several different points of view and basically reducing and saying that somehow he almost generalized and said the thing that these two reductive things have in common is the notion of time, which is kind of a commonality and a comparison. 
So it's worth pointing out that when he talks about duration, duration is his word for time, the full on concrete experience as we actually live yeah. it and so on and so forth, yeah. which mm-hmm. is potentially confusing as well, because duration for us today just means like, well, how long was the movie? Or <laughs> right. But for yeah, Bergson, uh, when he says duration, he's talking about time and what he really thinks time is. Oh, so if in movie reviews, you had to list the subjective time of the movie. So this was a particularly <laughs> boring movie. The, du- the the running time is an hour 15. The duration was eternal. Yeah. I can't tell you what the duration was. You know, you'd know, you have to experience yourself, but I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. So I think this is page 11. He says, I'm accused of taking the mental state out of duration by the mere fact that I analyze it. I shall reply, is not each of these elementary psychical states to which my analysis leads itself a state which occupies time? And then he goes on in the next paragraph talking about minutes and seconds and... Well, on that same page, was the fourth paragraph down. Yeah. It says, this means mm-hmm. that analysis yeah. operates. Am I on the right page? Yeah. In the previous paragraph, he's clarifying what a state is, and he wants to say that a state taken in itself is a perpetual becoming. So he wants to embody a state as having mm-hmm. an activity to it, a motion to it, rather than it being a picture or a, a moment in time. Is not He wants to not talk about that. It could be in a place, in a location, but this idea of a moment in time, he's going to want to focus on the activity going on and the motion. So he says in this paragraph, analysis operates always on the immobile, whilst intuition places itself in mobility, or what comes to mean the same thing, in duration. There lies the very distinct line of demarcation between intuition and analysis. The real, the experienced, and the concrete are recognized by the fact that they are variability itself, the element by the fact that it is invariable. And the element is invariable by definition, being a diagram, a simplified reconstruction, often a mere symbol, in any case a motionless view of a moving reality. But the error consists in believing that we can reconstruct the real from these diagrams, as we have already said and may well as repeat here, from intuition one can pass to analysis, but not from analysis to intuition. Right, so the best analysis, you know, it's not actually bogus to give sort of a number of analyses to try to then point someone's intuition to the original. Like, that's actually how it's supposed to, that's the only way we could communicate yeah, exactly. yeah. results of intuition yeah. at all, is to try to put you, you know, just to say, stand there and look at your hand moving. I have to use symbols to get you to, to experience the intuition I want you to. And for really difficult ones, you know, if I'm really pointing out some subtle emotional effect of a piece of music or something, then I might really bring up a lot of points of comparison that if I'm articulate and I had the original intuition that I'm trying to express, then still I couldn't then explain it to a robot or to somebody that just has a completely different constitution and doesn't understand music or to a deaf person, something like that. So, right, we can't recreate the intuition just by putting the concepts together, but because the concepts flow out of the intuition, you could use them to point you to return to the original. Yeah, I think that's an important point. An analytic Hmm. understanding can be a springboard to intuitive understanding in just that way. He uses this metaphor in the book on laughter, which I think you guys also did an episode on that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where I think he's talking about uh, teaching somebody how to fence. And it's a similar idea there. Maybe you have a fencing manual, and then you teach them the standard lessons out of the fencing manual, and that's, of course, useful. It's better than nothing. gives them a a starting point. But eventually, they're going to have to adapt that fencing manual into their own fencing style. And this sort of cookie-cutter, static, conceptual thing is a springboard to the intuitive thing. This is one of my the things that I miss most about teaching at St. John's is one of the classes we have is the first year mathematics where we go through most of Euclid. 
And the way we do that is a student will go up and give a presentation of the Euclidean proposition. And some of them are really easy and you just kind of gloss through them. But after a while, they're more difficult. And so you'll have this mathematical proposition and you can go through rotely one step after the other. And there is a kind of fact of the matter that you've demonstrated the claim at the beginning. So you say the square of the diagonal of right triangle is equal to the sum of the square of the sides. And you go through the steps and at the end, you've shown that that's true. But a lot of students, especially ones who are mathematically sophisticated, won't pay attention to it because they just assume that it's true. But the ones who are unsophisticated, who really try to understand it, they'll be really befuddled. And after a while, they'll get inside it. And then, to me, it's the moment where the light bulb goes off. And often, you'll have some students that just, they'll exclaim in the middle of the room, say, oh my God, I understand it. And they'll have gotten inside it in a way they hadn't been before, even though they could have written it down and articulated one step after the other and it had been true. They didn't understand it from the inside until, well, wherever this time, this occurrence of intuition where they see how it works, how the motion of the proposition works itself. And that depends not just on each individual step, but how the whole thing works from front to back as a whole, and then they understand it, they get it, they know it in a way that they, even if they had been able to write it down before, they never knew it. Yeah. Sorry, you were talking about the Pythagorean theorem? I just picked one of them, but I think that this kind of thing happens all the time. No, I was feeling insecure about whether or not I got it from the inside. <laughs> no, but I, I vaguely remember, so right, you can draw the squares on the different diagonals, right? And then you can start to see relationships about how the two other squares are combined yeah. equal the other square. You can very intuitively grasp that. If it's on paper, you could like cut out little bits of the piece of paper occupied by the squares and then rearrange them so that they line up inside the triangle or you know something like that. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, but here's my question. When I was showing that very proposition to my slave boy earlier this week, <laughs> how did he grab that intuition? Did he access some sort of transcendent thing or did he recognize something in his own experience and make an analogy to it? What is that moment of intuition? Well, I think without saying exactly what it is, that's what Bergson's pointing at. And in the case of the slave boy, if you're talking specifically about Socrates, Socrates just thinks that that's just true about us, that we have that power in ourselves. And that's what learning and philosophy are about. And that there's a activity of cultivating that. And so it's a separate road to go down to talk about that. Well, for Socrates, it was about memory, yeah, right? Exactly. I'm, recollection, yeah. I'm trying yeah. to make a serious point about this without bringing in the theory of knowledge as recollection. But the idea that, you know, if I talk around something enough and I use analogy and metaphor in order to try to stimulate your imagination to get inside of it, or if I continue to hammer the point home until you get through the exercise of doing the same thing over and over again, and the principle itself takes some adherence in your consciousness, that you get it by intuition. I'm asking, how are you having that intuition if it's not somehow based in your own experience and your own conceptual apparatus, which we already know is insufficient and is somehow completely and wholly different, and yet it appears to be able to be a catalyst, right? You have to jump off of something. So even though the idea of science and metaphysics are incommensurable, one spawns one and the other is a catalyst for the second. Can't you say you're coming into contact with the reality, the mathematical fact itself? I mean, that's what he, when he, we get to page 15 of here, he says, look, now we've talked about intuition this whole time. 
what are the uh, assumptions that underlie this? And the first one is there is a reality that is external and yet is given immediately to the mind. Common sense is right on this point as against idealism and the realism of the philosophers. This goes back to the question of what he means by absolute. And I think that he means by absolute something like the thing in itself, the interiority of it. But the difference with the thing in itself, though, is that things in themselves are unknowable. But Bergson's absolute thing is totally knowable. Right. But it's only knowable from the inside, which is the right. really it's in, the, in a certain way, strange yeah. and brilliant way of thinking. But about it's that. not yeah. knowable in the way it's important. We use in the word no. He's very against the idea that the thing is somehow a static, eternal substance that we somehow get a grasp on from the inside. Like we, oh, instead of looking at the properties of the thing, we're now looking at what the properties it inhere in. That's not at all what he's driving at. Yeah, it's antithetical to Plato's. Yeah. Now, when we say from the inside, we're thinking about sympathy. We're thinking about, in a weird way, you know, what it's like to be, even though that doesn't, I mean, I think it only applies analogously. But no, it's not like we're getting inside means boiling something down to essences. It's like it would be analogous to the way of knowing ourselves through duration. Yes. So knowing things as mobility. So the interiority there, it it is almost like empathizing with something inanimate. That's the way it sounds to me. And as applied to math, I mean, it's just intellectual intuition the way Kant thought of it, right? You focus on the mathematical fact and you see it in the same way that you would see the motion of your hand if you're moving it. That's part of what intuition gives you. Okay. I'm going to ask that we stay away from the hand example because <laughs> I have, I, listen, I can move my hand and look I away have, from I the can hand. Move my hand and I have absolutely no knowledge or intuition at all of what, what happens that makes my hand move. I have no access to, right? So that one doesn't help me get closer to what it is that we're trying to say. But you know what you're doing with your hand. You don't know maybe all the tendons and what they're doing, but you know what you're doing with your hand, as it were, perfectly. Or at least that's the idea. After the fact, if I like, I mean, I just do it. Well, exactly. So you just do it, but that's the most perfect way of knowing what you're doing with your hand. But that's not what the exercise of metaphysics, it's not just like you just do metaphysics and you, or you just do time or do duration. That was the point I brought up earlier, that you could just do digestion, but you don't understand it at all. Well, but digestion is different than the hand. I think the digestion is a bad example in this context. <laughs> we have a lot of confusing examples. But let me get back to the what Wes was just talking about, which I think is really critical. This idea of getting interior to a thing, this intellectual empathy or intellectual sympathy, which requires imagination and all that, is also getting at the thing as it persists through time. Mm-hmm. This duration is really critical, and there's a point at which it feels like he totally makes a left turn, and he starts talking about becoming versus being, and that's the point at which I thought, oh my gosh, do I need to go research to see if Whitehead was a disciple of or, or read Bergson? He was. Yeah, yeah, very explicitly. influenced by Bergson. Yeah, and in fact, uh, Whitehead's phrase, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness, is exactly, that's basically a name for the thing that Bergson's worried about in this paper. All of them are in the, uh, you know, it keeps going back to Heraclitus. They're in the tradition of process philosophy. That's awesome. Yeah. For the Persig fans there, <laughs> that Bergson actually himself uses duration as being a matter of quality, right? That quantity is something of space. Things laid out next to each other. You know, you say this dog, this dog, this dog. You focus on the one thing that they have in common and you can count them as homogenous things. But perceptions as flowing sequentially in the mind are not like that, except if we sort of, again, make that abstraction and look at them retrospectively and lay them out as if they were a timeline existing 
like laid out in space. But as we actually experience it, changes are merely qualitative, not quantitative. So that whole quality is just another way of talking about duration. And that's Persig's term. It's straight from Bergson. Yeah. Zen in the art of the derivative. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. But it's not derivative because you can re-experience it at any point. You can rediscover. So Mark throws a bone to the Persig people. <laughs> Dylan takes it back. <laughs> it's an uncoiling and then a reeling back in. <laughs> oh, hashtag philosophy joke. <laughs> can we start using comments to say hashtag in it in the podcast on a regular basis? Uh, I think we'll get abused if we do. Hashtag shoot me. I started hearing that in podcasts long before I got on Twitter. I was very confused. <laughs> There's a nice little passage here about the identification thing. Right. Somewhere in here, he talks about the fact that it's not abstraction, but the fact that we experience our own duration, it implies the durations of everything else. <laughs> and it's not just imaginative sympathy that I know what it's like to be me, and so I imagine what it's like to be you, but it's more like on the edge of your experience, just like when you experience a physical object Yes, okay, you're only seeing one side of it, but there are implications in that experience of the back of the object, etc. There are all these, if you sort of look more deeply into the experience, in the same way that he was talking about looking deeply into yourself, and first you see the crust, and then you can sort of see into the core, that that's the way it is with duration. And so the rest of the what it's like to be the book, the what it's like to be the uh, mathematical equation, are all sort of hovering on the edge of our experience somehow. There's a nice passage that I think ties this together. So this is page 15. Now, he's just done the criticism of the empiricist and the rationalist. And he basically says, the problem with the empiricist is that they're focused on all the individual moments in time, the states. And the problem with the rationalist is that they focus on the unity of those things, but can't get from the unity back to the individual states. And he says, it is quite otherwise if we place ourselves from the first by an effort of intuition in the concrete flow of duration. Certainly then we shall find no logical reason for positing multiple and diverse durations. Strictly, there might well be no other duration than our own, as for example, there might be no other color in the world but orange. But just as consciousness is based on color, which sympathized internally with orange instead of perceiving it externally, would feel itself held between red and yellow would even perhaps suspect beyond this last color a complete spectrum into which the continuity blah blah blah. So the intuition of our duration, far from leaving us suspended in the void, meaning between states and unity, brings us into contact with the whole continuity of durations, which we must try to follow whether downwards or upwards. In both cases, we can extend ourselves indefinitely by an increasing violent effort. In both cases, we transcend ourselves. Exactly the quote, yes. Yeah. Awesome. I took that to mean that the intuition is to get somehow between those things and grasp that they somehow hang in the balance together. But if you turn your attention towards one or the other, you start to concretize and focus in. You're going to lose the one you turn away from, and you're actually going to lose your position of intuition and descend into science or metaphysics on the other end, traditional metaphysics. Would it clarify, Matt, if you just described that flipping back and forth using Hegelian terminology? <laughs> yeah, I think that would definitely shed some light on this whole already very clear um, <laughs> argument. <laughs> the comparisons to other philosophers, you know, jump out. Whitehead is often criticized as saying basically the same thing as Bergson, but in a much more complicated way. That I like at least that fundamentally intuition is that which cannot be articulated, right? That's right. The, whole, the whole point. Metaphysics is yeah, yeah. 
trying to do something impossible. It's trying to just point us at, you know, this is very much like what Wittgenstein had described, right? I think the way he sees it, it's not like he's writing things down and like, oh, yeah, I'm nailing it here. Oh, I totally nailed that. You know, it's more like he's just groping the whole time. He's struggling. Part of that is this whole problem that Seth pointed to about memory and I guess trying to speak of emotion becomes very difficult. We're so used to talking about things that don't change and building something up in terms of a sequence of things that don't change and talking about them as they exist now. Talking about something that is changing but has a hole to it, it's very hard to do. We have the same problem when we talked about Heraclitus or we talk about Persig and quality and stuff. He opens the door to say somewhere that's hard and that for a lot of practical things, to get back to the utility question, we have to be able to apply the Kantian categories and, and do that sort of thing, which gives this the whiff of mysticism, but the way he talks about it is decidedly anti-mystical, I would have to say. Really? In this work, at least. Yeah, I think in other works, it's clear he's a mystic. <laughs> or he has some tendencies and he's... Well, but the mystical position, though, I think would emphasize that, you know, the absolute is kind of beyond our ken. Whereas I think the starting point here is more Aristotelian in the sense that our knowledge faculty basically works. The way we come to learn things about the world is fundamentally indicative of the way the world is. It's just that he has this second way of <laughs> coming to learn things about the world in view. I think it would be more the skeptic, right, to say it's beyond our mm. can. I mean, if you look at someone like Plotinus, who Bergson was way into, although I think he was also critical of Plotinus, but, you know, this communion with the one, which is arguably mm. a type of intuition. So the mystic still has access. It's just mystical access or intuitive access. Oh, that's interesting. I had not thought of drawing the connection to Neoplatonism there. I think, yeah, I think there might be something there. This whole intuition sounds, you know, we already drew the comparison to the Mino. It sounds like you're getting in touch with essences and that the only difference is between him and somebody like Frege or even Husserl. Husserl goes on to talk about essences very much in the way that Aristotle does. Just the big difference is that Bergson's a process guy, so you don't get at essences. It's Heraclitus versus Parmenides, right? He's on the Heraclitean side. Right. Hashtag team Heraclitus. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone is interested in this whole process philosophy movement, there are two great books by Nicholas Rescher on it, which talk about Bergson, Whitehead, Hegel a bit, roots of actually of process philosophy in both Plato and Aristotle. And yeah, it's, it's, yeah they're, they're pretty nice. Hmm. Nicholas Rescher? Yeah, Nicholas yeah, he's, Rescher. He's quasi-famous. I read yeah. a lot of Rescher stuff in... Um at UT, but I think it was about Leibniz and the ideality of relations. Leibniz is also, uh, you know, in this tradition, I mean, he's not as full-on Heraclitean as uh, Bergson and Whitehead, but he has yeah. a lot of influential ideas in this tradition that Bergson and Whitehead are drawing well, on. Well, the interpenetration. Yeah, we talked about a lot of process stuff. Well, the monads are like little... Yeah, monads are like little processes, yeah. exactly. Yep. Yeah. Energetics. Vis viva. Yep. Should we go through a few more of the propositions that start on page 15, that's more or less the rest of the article, right? Number one, there is a reality that's external yet given immediately to the mind. Do we want to say any more about that? That seems like, given our recent Barclay episode, seems like we could talk about that all day. <laughs> that means he's some kind of Platonist that right there in experiences are our essences. And that's what the reality is. Essences that are in well, motion. More, more an Aristotelian though, actually. Yeah, and the essences yeah, stuff, yes. he just would want to, I mean, wouldn't Bergson just want to deny the essences talk the way Barclay talks about it? Because yeah, he would absolutely. say that yeah. it's not embodying the motion of the thing. Well, we replace, yeah, the essences with processes or... Durations. Yes, know. yes. But he would, I think, 
be all over Barclay as saying, you just don't get it, man. It's the motion of the ocean. To get to the Aristotelian point of view, you just, you still get immediacy, but you need essence or some version of that, which Barclay didn't like. He's rejected that as abstraction. So right. here you're not getting essence, but you're getting some, an equivalent. Barclay and Bergson shared the idea that reality is what is immediately given to the yep, mind. Exactly. But yet you wouldn't want to call Bergson an idealist. If you can't use the essence or the abstraction trick, then you sort of melt down into idealism pretty quickly. What makes Bergson not an idealist? Because he has an equivalent. I mean, dura- it's not essence, but duration is something like what you need. Often the way he talks in this essay, not always, but often the way he talks in this essay about attending to the concrete details of your experience makes him sound a little bit empiricist in the sense that he thinks, well, you know, the only thing we can really know anything about is our experience and then everything else. It's like kind of a free for all. But I think his picture, even of what perception is, is very third personal. He doesn't really go into it as much in this paper. I think he just sort of assumes that for anything that's real, there's a first personal way of approaching it and a third personal way of approaching it. Yeah, idealism, I don't think really comes into the picture. I think he, you know, assumes some sort of realism. Yeah, this gets us back to, I mean, there sort of are things in themselves here. It's just that we have immediate intuitive access to them. Yeah. Yeah, I think once you, if you say we have some sort of access from the inside out, I think you, you get around that problem to some extent. We tend to think of perception, you know, in these empiricist influenced days now as like like a feeling. Like I sit here and like stuff bombards my eyes and it makes me feel a certain way or something. And that's what perception is. But Bergson thinks of perception in a much more, I guess I was using the language of third personally earlier. What are the actual, the objective relations that obtain between me and the things I'm perceiving and the possible actions that I can perform on those things? So although in in this paper, I think he sounds like he's taking sense experience to be the foundation of what we can know, I think he really sees it just as one access route to knowing things. He says, there is a reality that is external and yet given immediately to the mind. Second, this reality is mobility. Not things, but things in the making. Not states, but only changing states. The third is, our mind, which seeks for solid points of support, has for its main function in the ordinary course of life that of representing states and things. Does that change the discussion of whether he's contra-Barkleyan idealism or something like that? I- yeah, he's, he's not an idealist. Although, in that second one, all reality, therefore, is tendency. I thought that was interesting, and I thought of that when Dylan mentioned the angular momentum of the particles, which doesn't require a spin. That's why it made me think of tendency. Mm-hmm. So the interpretation I give that is, uh, it's, he has sort of a teleological picture of the universe is made of things doing things. So these tendencies are the, are the things that different things in the universe are doing. You know, trying to figure out, does this work as metaphysics? Does it do the things that we would like metaphysics to do? He criticizes Kant, that Kant puts all metaphysics in the realm of the thing itself and says we don't have access to that, so all metaphysics is basically bullshit. All metaphysics reduces to antinomies. Mm-hmm. You know, so Kant asks in the Critique of Pure Reason, he considers questions like, does time have a beginning or not? That's just one of the classical metaphysical questions, and says, really, you can give equally good arguments both ways. And says you could do that with, do we have free will or not? And that points to what's wrong with metaphysics. So does Bergson solve this? And it seems like to me that he at least has an answer to give for the questions that have to do intimately with the self and our own experience, right? Right. Even the self itself, we've already talked about that. The self is not like an empiricist would think, like human think, a string of perceptions that we can't explain how they even fit together and what distinguishes my string from your string, 
nor is it the transcendental container of the string of perceptions as a rationalist, according to Bergson, would put it. So he has an answer to that. He also has an answer comparable to that, to the question of free will. I skimmed the book Time and Free Will that he wrote about 12 years before this one. And I don't feel bad at dropping in parts of it because you know, it has everything to do with these things that we've already talked about in here in the difference between the qualitative character of experience versus the quantitative character of space. And to think that our actions are determined is to mix the two up, right? In this discussion already, we've given all the elements that would give Bergson's answer to the question of free will, that we experience our will as free, as in thinking about our duration and focusing on things, common sense tells you that when I make a decision to move my hand and then my hand moves, that that was a free action. I could have done something otherwise. And the only reason that we would think that, no, everything has a cause and the group of antecedent conditions determines the next one, it's because we've stripped time of its natural duration and laid it out again as if it were space. Whether or not that's convincing, and uh, certainly he goes on and on about that, there's much more to say about that, but you can sort of see the outline of his answer. We also have his answer on sort of what the basic ontology is, right? It's process rather than things. But does time have a beginning or not? Like, it seems duration, we can talk about that, but time itself as, maybe he's going to have to say that the question is misconceived, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly what he would say. Or is space infinite, or does it have an ending point? Like that one, I don't see any answer out of what we've seen here, at least. Well, I don't know what the answer would actually be in his case, but I think he's committed to the first time would be when there was first a change, when there was first something. (laughs) The first motion. Yeah, the first motion. There couldn't be a time before the first thing changed or the first thing existed. And then likewise for space, you know, I think he's uh, borrowing from Leibniz's relational theory of space. So in other words, where there are things, there's space, but there can't be space extending beyond where there are things. So the, you know, there's a bound to space if there is a final thing past which there are no more things. But if there are things extending forever and ever, then there isn't a bound to space. Likewise with time. If there have been things going back forever, then there's time going back forever. But if there was a first thing, then there's also a first moment of time. So those, those two questions line up, I think. He's committed to those two questions lining up. Well, we can't really address this. But given what I saw in, in Time and Free Will, mm-hmm. is, is he really wants to contrast time and space so that you're right about time is all about the concrete duration. And then after the fact, we sort of cut it up. But space is actually given to us as the manifold of things next to each other. So I think according to our basic intuition of space is it is infinite, whereas with time, it's not. But the fact that I don't really know that. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. So I was actually drawing on his later. He changes oh, okay. his tune about space later on after that first uh, book. Ah, Does that signal something, though, that (laughs) this method of metaphysics that he's sketched out really doesn't give us any good way, any Kant-proof way of examining these issues? Interesting. I mean, when you move to somebody like Heidegger, who's specifically saying, I don't even give a crap about objective time, if that means anything. I'm just talking about time as experienced. Mm. Like, well, then you've just said that what there is of metaphysics can be treated by this method. But what might have been historically called metaphysics, if there are questions such as the beginning of the universe or not, they're either science or they're meaningless or we don't care. You have to give some non-answer. 
Well, I'm very much out of my element talking about Heidegger, so maybe I should just not. But there's this approach, it, it comes up at Wittgenstein, where you try to sort of, uh, rather than answering these really difficult paradoxical philosophical questions, you try to dissolve them and show that they're ill-formed, and maybe that's the best mm-hmm. we can do, because there's no way to actually answer them. And my sense in Bergson is that his temperament is not so much in that direction to try to dissolve, to make the questions seem ill-formed. No. We should be able to extend our intuition and somehow identify with the universe <laughs> implicitly, and then we would know whether it has a beginning. Or, uh, that's Something the best like I can guess yeah. based on what we've seen. Here. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the question here is: what are case examples of using intuition to do metaphysics? Right? It's unclear what that would look like exactly. Hmm. And we've seen in Berkeley, and there's so many parallels to Schopenhauer here. What I know of his conception of the will, and I know that Whitehead was very explicitly talked about God. So the idea that you, you know, maybe this is the mystical element that is implicit in Bergson, that if you really think that all metaphysical explanation is going to be seeing all these things from the inside out through an imagined or even actual expansion of your consciousness to experience them that way, there's certainly a path open for a successor to say, that's how we can know God. You know, that's almost what Barclay says. It's just with them, it's explicitly by analogy. It's not... That I can metaphysically have the God experience. Yeah. I am the cosmos. One thing is interesting about Whitehead. Well, I don't know if we want to talk about Whitehead. You can, because you won't be here probably when we talk about him for real. <laughs> okay. pretty soon. Oh, you can do Whitehead. That's great. Well, the interesting thing about Whitehead with God is that he's sort of in the tradition of liberal theology where you develop an interpretation of religion that just is going to fit with common sense. Right? So if your interpretation of religion requires you to just throw common sense to the wind at any point, uh, maybe you're going to have to go back and, and rework it a bit. The God that appears in Whitehead is this very abstract, depersonalized, metaphysical, you know, it's not the man in the sky with a beard type God. It's one that's going to have to square with everything we know about science and the natural world and so forth. A bit like Spinoza's God, perhaps, in that respect. The only thing relevant to us now is, again, trying to apply this. This is the introduction to metaphysics. He's given us the method. He's said what intuition is. He's given us the example of duration. Can we now take this and argue usefully about the existence of God? Mm. I can't. It doesn't make a freaking bit of sense to me to think that I can, by analogy or by actually expanding my consciousness, see things from the point of view of the book in front of me, much less God. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm an atheist, so I guess I'm kind of biased in that regard. I'm not sure that I think that the conditions are exactly the same between the book and God in your example, Mark. And maybe this just comes down to what the distinction about the absolute is. I don't think that Bergson invests the absolute with the kind of gravity that often gets associated with it. And it wouldn't even also require that you know everything that there is to know to talk about access to that absolute. So, to talk about, you know, the perspective of the book or an electron or a car or something like that doesn't require that you have all-knowing knowledge of it. And it doesn't even require that you understand it. um, Discursively, right? You you have to be able to spell out the properties. Yeah. And I guess it's not clear to me that the case of God isn't different The example that came to mind when I was reading through this, because one part of me is a physicist, is Feynman, who's a theoretical physicist who, among the great work that he did was on the the quantum theory of electrodynamics. And one of the ways in which people characterized his thinking was that he would think from the point of view of an electron, what it must be like, the world must be like for an electron, and that his account 
of the world, at least his account of quantum electrodynamics, was informed by trying to think of the world and the way the world would be experienced from the point of view of that electron. And that, to me, is the kind of thing that Bergson's getting at, where the world exists apart from you as the person thinking of it, and there are real interactions that that world has with its surroundings, and part of that intuition is to put yourself in that place, and getting to know the world is getting to know it from that perspective. What would it mean to be an electron and going through the consequences of that? And I suppose there's something about that that you could do with God and God's perspective, but the problem with it is it doesn't admit of the kind of experiments, you know, the kind of verification, the kind of right. interaction. The access to something interior seems to be, I don't know, it just seems to be a different kind of problem. It would be inconclusive speculation. It's the same structure of antinomy that I was describing as common in Kant. So I can give a Barclay-like account from this point of view of sort of what it would be like to be God and fit a God into this view. Or I could also say, and this is actually what makes more sense to me, I understand as a knowing being that all knowledge is perspectival, that we only see things from one angle at a time. And even if, as Bergson says, the present perception is pregnant with all the Actually, he doesn't use this. This is more Husserl language, but we've talked about this in terms of, you know, the monad-like quality of the interpenetration of all the elements so that when you look at one thing, you're not just seeing it. You're seeing sort of the echoes of many, many other things. And if you follow Bergson, those are not even distinct things. There's a continuum there. Okay, well, if that's what knowledge is, then there can't be a being that is above all perspectives. It wouldn't be able to have knowledge at all. And so the idea of a universe-sized knowing being is a contradiction in terms. So God is impossible on Bergsonian grounds. Ha! But again, I could probably sketch out a contra to that. And there's no way to decide between them as far as I can see. I'm not going to chase this anymore, but I just think there's something unsatisfying to a, a historical metaphysician about this suggested method of evaluating metaphysical issues. Well, until we read more Bergson... I looked at one book, and Matt has looked at at least two of them, and probably more. I don't know that... It's all about method? Does it pay does, off? Does he just linger does on it, method? Oh, not at all. I mean... Uh, or that his insights are very narrow, and he dwells on them for a long time, like this theory Matt was describing about memory that's given in encapsulated form in here, of memory being you know, a reflection of the constant accretion of experience, and so you never actually have the same experience twice. This is, again, why we can't say every time there's a cause of one kind, then you're going to have a similar effect. Why that is not applicable to experience, because you never actually have the same antecedent experience twice ever. Every point in the flow of experience is unique. So yeah, he has profound insights like that, but does he really ever get beyond that kind of stuff, Matt? Well, let's see. So I think that he is obsessed with all of these themes that he's obsessed with in this essay and everything that I've read by him, but he explores the similar themes from very different directions in different works. For example, in Creative Evolution, there's a lot of really fascinating stuff about different forms of uh, animal intelligence and sort of drawing conclusions about human action and sort of distinctions between human action and various kinds of animal behavior. Also in those works, he raises some very interesting new ideas about what we now call, he didn't call it at the time, but what we now call modality in metaphysics, 
in that book, uh, also in a later paper called The Possible and the Real, he uh, introduces this idea that you can create metaphysical possibilities, which is kind of a radical philosophical idea that I haven't really seen anybody develop elsewhere. And then in the laughter book, which you guys looked at in an earlier episode. Right, that was right before this essay. Right. A lot of those same themes are explored using examples from literature and theater. I think he has a ton of really fascinating, really original philosophical ideas that can be of use to us right now. The way he introduces them, he sort of comes up with them like on the spot as he's in the course of struggling with these grand themes. He's not the kind of philosopher everybody loves today where you present this traditional philosophical puzzle and you see, ah, this solution to the puzzle doesn't work and this solution is also unsatisfactory. Ah, but here I'm the first person ever after thousands of years. I've come up with the first ever satisfactory solution to the puzzle and now we can all go home. Never really does philosophy in that way and can sometimes write as though he's solving a puzzle when he really isn't. You know, oh, you know, the empiricists are missing this and the rationalists are missing this. But if we just do what I'm doing and fluctuate between them or whatever, we can avoid the fallacies of each. And that can be kind of unsatisfying, I think, because it sometimes makes him sound like he's providing a solution to these grand philosophical dilemmas when he's not. He's above the school. Yeah, he's like above all the schools or something. But I do think that, but in the course of, you know, wrestling with all this stuff, he comes up with so many interesting, totally original philosophical ideas. Some of the stuff we mentioned so far... Like this picture of memory, I think, is pretty original. He has these accounts of things that seem really counterintuitive at first. Like if you take laughter, you do, what do we think laughter is? What do we think laughter is like light entertainment and it's de-stressing after a hard day at work or something. But then his notion of laughter, well, laughter is a social reprimand. Like <laughs> It's a crowd of people reprimanding somebody for having lapsed too much into daydreams. But then after you try to think your way into them for about 10 minutes, they go from being counterintuitive to like really compelling. So I think these ideas he has, they're very useful for the way they stir us to think about things in new ways. I think he really sort of shakes you out of your habitual way of thinking things. And one of the great philosophers for that reason. Well, thanks for that <laughs> preview slash overview of his oeuvre. What do other folks think of this essay? I kind of agree based on what I've read of him that the appeal is sort of like Nietzsche, that he doesn't try to talk about everything, but the areas that he does try to talk about are pretty entertaining and original. I got to say that what I was seeing about time and free will, maybe it was because it was his dissertation, was sort of a slog, even in this very short intro to metaphysics book, like he definitely takes his time to unpack the idea that he wants. This description of duration just seems to... Other, yeah. other folks might have given it in a quicker manner. <laughs> But uh, still, it's interesting. I'm actually reminded of Nietzsche, too, because like Nietzsche, he's a great writer and he's got a certain psychological acuity and a certain sensitivity to, well, both psychological and social phenomena, I think, with the book on laughter is really insightful. He's sort of like Nietzsche's more idealistic, more sober younger brother (laughs) or something, right? There's more of an analytical quality to his writing. But every time I read Bergson, it's like a feeling of being pleasantly surprised. There's a certain element of clarity, strangely enough, for somebody who's talking about all these things which are on the meant to be on the edge of discursive understanding. <laughs> you know, the use of the different images, the uncoiling. You know, he really someone I want to read more of. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree by about you know, style wise, by the way, I think most of the philosophers in the canon have really sort of put pro style by the wayside, unfortunately. There are some notable exceptions to this. And anyway, Bergson is one of those notable exceptions. He's yep. an extraordinary pro stylist. I mean, I think I mentioned in the precog that, you know, he's a big influence on Proust uh, for his theory of time, but it's my personal opinion that uh, he was also an influence on Proust as a stylist. Hmm. Just has amazing French prose. Well, certainly it's important historically to get at some of the nuances of, you know, what this thing called phenomenology is that took over. I guess in the history, I mean, you can see Sartre, for instance, 
just explicitly was all over Bergson, just thought he was great and could see if you think Sartre's in our discussion of his notion of freedom as really not giving an adequate defense of why he really thinks we have free will. Oh, we just experience it. That Bergson is really gives us a way of talking about that in a more rigorous way that I think maybe Sartre was even implicitly relying on. Like, I don't need to redo that work. Bergson already did that. We pointed out one difference between him and Husserl was Husserl still is like a rationalist. You know, they're getting at static essences and Bergson is not, even though Husserl wants to catch the life world. And certainly if you read Heidegger's notion of time, he was also explicitly influenced by Bergson. This notion that Bergson has of the truth being intuitive and outside language, I mean, that certainly is opposed to later Heidegger's, you know, language is the house of being. That Heidegger has this picture of even a word as being infected by the culture and by the history of language in the same way that it seems like an experience for Bergson is infected by all of your past experience and things on the periphery of experience and really the whole of potentially sympathizable uh, the universe. I enjoyed reading it a lot. When I was first going through it, I had a kind of negative reaction, sort of setting up these dichotomies, which seemed to be to argue against something that didn't seem to be exactly the case. It was building up straw men, it seemed to me. In the end, I think it was kind of a rhetorical move to say, well, we're doing this thing wrong, so we need to do this other thing more right. I got over it eventually. And for talking about pretty complicated things, he's a pleasure to read. You're getting through tough material without feeling like it's so much of a slog. I would enjoy reading more of him in this direction of process philosophy. And by the end of the essay, I felt like he'd said what that activity of metaphysics ought to be. And I'm interested to see like what the result of it would be. He draws this analogy with calculus saying that, you know, there was this problem with understanding how one thing moved through space it was broken up into individual moments and individual places. And calculus is an example of, of something that inverted that. We learned something about what motion was. I guess this is towards the end of section seven. And he talks about this needing to be true in metaphysics, that we need to make this inversion of the direction of thought and focus on the motion. And he says in seven that the most powerful methods of investigation at the disposal of the human mind, the infinitesimal calculus, originated from this very inversion. And it made me think that what he's calling for is a kind of intellectual equivalent of what calculus did for motion to happen in philosophy. So there's a critique of what metaphysics' main activity ought to be and the direction it ought to go. But I would like to see what he would mean by that. Like, what would be the calculus equivalent? I mean, calculus is an actual account of motion rather than in response to that problem of articulating motion in terms of just discrete points. I'd like to see what the flowering of that articulation would be for Bergson, for philosophy. Be the dog. argue that a, a recent contemporary example of this is the dynamic turn in philosophical logic since the 1980s, classical 20th century logic, the interpretation is driven by these static models, which are basically a picture of the way the world might be. Whereas following the dynamic turn, the focus is on not meaning as representing a static state of the world, but rather as the uh, meaning of something being a way of changing a conversation. Uh, so the potential change to a conversation, the potential change to 
Sometimes in computer science context, it's thought of as the change to the state of a machine. You think of meaning in, in terms of changes. Yeah, actually, I would argue that in contemporary philosophical logic and natural language semantics, we've been witnessing this dynamic turn. I think the, the cutting edge of this is in Amsterdam right now, kind of looking to a more social group-oriented conception of reasoning. And for example, they're kind of doing new things with it. Like, for example, they're trying to come up with these new definitions of knowledge, these uh, stability definitions of knowledge. Instead of defining knowledge as, well, it's a thing with this property plus this property plus this property, it's a state that has these stability problems that changes in this way if you do this to it, and it changes in that way if you do that to it. So defining something in terms of its possible ways of changing. So anyway, I think that's actually a nice, pretty recent example of of this sort of revolution happening. Hmm. Which certainly sounds like a descendant of Charles Sanders' purse on knowledge as being truth is what the community of good thinkers would ultimately come up with or something like that, or or just the connections between this and pragmatism are very strong. He refers to William James explicitly, and then William James apparently really liked this essay in particular. Yeah, there's another essay in this collection, actually, which I haven't read yet on pragmatism. I think it might be the one right after this one in the collection. Oh, so the collection you're referring to, this was an essay independently published in 1903. Oh, sorry, yes. But then was put together with a bunch of other things in a collection that I used to own and can no longer locate. So I used the PDF and... (laughs) That's right. It's called The Creative Mind in English. Is his essay on tar water in there? No, that's sorry. That's that's Barclay. Uh Ha-ha. Well, but but in just looking at the Stanford Encyclopedia article on Bergson, I saw the same thing, that the two sources of morality and religion, his last book, is the one that's sort of dismissed as being a little crackpot uh, and kind of was part of the reason why he became much less influential as compared to Heidegger and folks like that in his later life. Yeah. Also, his book on relativity theory was dismissed as being a big crackpot, <laughs> mm. which thankfully we didn't yes. read for today. <laughs> Whitehead gets a- accused of the same things, that there's lots of interesting philosophy, but then when he starts arguing with Einstein or something, you know, then there are problems. I haven't read enough of it to, to say anything really educated about that, but we see that time and again. And we have this same reaction to Schopenhauer that he gave this brilliant Kantian epistemological account in what we read and his idea about the will is pretty fascinating, but then actually very much parallel to Bergson ended up arguing for what the Elan Vital yeah, how would you agency that? and everything like as a scientific principle, which, you know, at the very least is something that's very out of fashion, reduce the credibility in historical eyes of these figures, mm. whether or not that's justified. Maybe we have to have an episode specifically on that. I think this Bergson writing is much better than the last one we read. And I was going to say something about his notion of humor and point to one of his jejun and out-of-date references, but I decided (laughs) not to. I mean, I kind of always knew him as the memory guy. Like his claim to fame was that he acknowledged and called out the importance of memory to consciousness and so on. I still think that's a really interesting insight that I'd like to, that's the topic I would like to explore more of his. But I can say this, that when I read this, I saw a lot of similarities with this idea. He has kind of a metaphysical analog to the moral sentiment that we read in Hume and Smith, where you're making a move of imagination in order to put yourself in a place where you can not necessarily be something else, but to create the possibility of being able to conceive of or uh, experience something else that's necessary for this further development. In the case of Hume and Smith, it's about moral action that, you know, imagination creates the possibility of moral action by through empathy uh, or through an empathetic kind of 
positioning. And his focus here on imagination reminded me of that. And I thought it was kind of an interesting analog. And then, of course, I saw all of the threads that get picked up by Heidegger and some other folks. But I quite enjoyed it. I was with Dylan. There was kind of like a kind of a slowdown there after the initial phase. But there was a point at which I got really sort of energized by it and I was able to crank right through it. And I don't know if it's his prose or the translation, but a very, very readable text, if not understandable in the final analysis, just like Dylan was saying, I kind of wanted to see where it goes. And it was nice for him to put a little summary at the end. All right. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Yeah, thanks, thank Matt. You. Next time, we're going to talk about free will. We're going to read P.F. Strassen's Freedom and Resentment. Also, his son Galen Strassen's The Impossibility of Moral Responsibility and Gary Watson's Responsibility and the Limits of Evil, Variations on a Strassonian Theme with guest Tamler Summers from the Very Bad Wizards podcast. We are supported by your donations. Please go to partiallyexaminedlife.com to make a contribution. Big donors over the last month have included Dana Copeland, Marianne Chidiak, Malcolm Starr, Baris Ari, Brian McKenney, Brian Arsenault, Justin Christensen, Patrick Findler, Cam Clayton, Justin Anderson, Daniel Hertz, George McLaughlin, Mike Sinegal, Josh Weinstein, Walter Niedekis, Damian Green, Stephen Goodsell, Courtney Bowman, Philip Cherney, Gabe Ormsby, Clinton Whitehouse Jr., Stephen Brazale, Darwin Moljono, Eric Fleming, Timothy Downing, Daniel Petruchka, Bill Howe, and Brant Gresham. Thanks also to the smaller donors, including the many who are newly or on a continued basis signed up for our $5 a month citizen site, which is awesome. Please join our Facebook group, follow us on Twitter, join our LinkedIn group, Join our Google Plus group. That's a popular one. Uh, maybe we have something on Pinterest. Do we have that? Why don't we have that yet? We do not have a Pinterest page yet. Go out, check out our Audiboo page. That one's a hoot. Audio boo. Audio or boo. Or SoundCloud. Page. SoundCloud. MySpace? Hell. MySpace? We forgot that one. We're not a band from 1983. <laughs> 1983. <laughs> <laughs> 1983. That's because MySpace predated the internet by 15 years. Let me correct myself. Mark might very well be in a band that was on MySpace. Or have formed one. Awesome. Hey, we've got new things. If you go to our shop donate page, we've got new things you can purchase. Go to the iTunes store to our page there and give us a nice rating or review. We would mostly appreciate it. <laughs> we would mostly appreciate it. We would greatly appreciate it. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. I recall owning a lifetime in a rented hall. Always amazed at what went on in there. Left unimpressed by the increasing tear. I invest a lot in daily reflection But what I forgot is ever mocking away At what I'll never be So do you see why I'm so stuck on me?
I believe if you were leaving, you'd walk out on me. At least I would know, but with a piece of you, no one can tell what any change can do. Who am I? That seems the question, but the facts belie all of the truths. But what you used to fear. Idiot missing several fingers here. Most days you're gonna be just fine.